welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 30. Excellent show this week. I'm so excited. I've actually been looking forward to it for weeks now. And uh, But before we get to any of our really important information and our wonderful guest, I want to do my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Look at what's happening in the world right now. I mean, it's it, it really does feel, at least to me, like things are on a knife edge. And we're watching the circus playing out, the so-called presidential election. We're watching all of these things from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Ukraine, all over Latin America right now, Africa. Things are, uh, I think, at a, you know, for lack of a better term, at a tipping point and we have very few spaces online in the alternative media, very few spaces that provide a truly independent perspective. And I think that independent perspective is even more critical now than it ever has been before, particularly considering the media landscape. I mean, look around you and tell me, you could probably count on one hand the number of places that you can truly trust for independent analysis. And Counterpunch is one of them, and I think it's the preeminent place for that. And so, with that in mind, I urge you to consider supporting Counterpunch, and there's a number of ways you can do that. I think one of the best ways is getting a subscription to the print magazine. Great magazine. When it comes in your mailbox, it's always exciting. Great artwork, excellent columns, every issue, um, hard-hitting analysis. I love it. And frankly, I don't have a lot of print magazine subscriptions these days, so it's, it's nice that I'm able to have that. I urge you to consider that as well. You can also, of course, support this podcast by giving us a positive review on iTunes, help spread the word about the show, bring it to more listeners, also very critical. And then, of course, if you want to make a donation to Counterpunch, you can do that directly through the website using uh, various methods, including PayPal, which for many people is probably the easiest. So, you know, that's my that's my shameful pitch, I guess. But I want to turn to uh, my guest this week because... Diana Johnstone is an author and a journalist and somebody who I think is in many ways one of the most important voices we have, particularly given how critical the situation is right now. And her new book, I mean, this is a must read. Get it, the digital edition, get it from Counterpunch, get it online. Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. Absolutely critical book to have right now considering this whole election charade. So I'm so happy to have her. Diana Johnstone, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much for uh, talking with me. Thank you for coming on, and thank you so much for writing this book, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. It couldn't be more timely. It couldn't be more important. So um, I want to start at a sort of a general level because, you know, look— we have biographies of Hillary Clinton. We have the stories of her life and all of this, all of these puff pieces and all of the, you know, background on her, whatever. But that is not what this book is, thankfully. Uh, I think that Queen of Chaos is something actually quite different. In many ways, it's not even really a portrait of Hillary Clinton so much as it is a portrait of the empire that Hillary Clinton is vying to lead. So, Let's talk a little bit about that at a general level, uh, how the empire is being portrayed in this book and how Hillary, I think you're arguing, in many ways embodies all of the most important elements of contemporary imperialism. 
Exactly. That's precisely uh, my feeling about it. And indeed, I don't think that Hillary Clinton is very interesting as a, as a person. But because precisely she's somebody who's learned the lessons. She's learned the lessons. She's the perfect little student who's learned the lessons um, that the financial powers that be want you to learn, that the military-industrial complex and its think tanks want you to learn, and she parrots all that very skillfully, I suppose, with an excellent hairdresser and makeup and fine wardrobe these days. And she's simply embodying the the cliches, the groupthink of the Washington uh, power elite, which is, of course, not just the Washington power elite. It's the power elite that is working on behalf of the takeover of the world by financial capital. That's what it's really about. The takeover of the United States by financial capital, the takeover of Europe and the takeover of, of, of the planet to, to, uh, to make financial capital the decisive factor in, in, in all decision making. And that's really, <laughs> that's very short, but that's what I'm driving at in this book. Oh, I think you're right. And one of the things that comes across in the book, and it's something that I always talk about in, you know, in various capacities is not understanding the nature of the empire as simply the United States, but rather what I would call the imperial system, a system in which there are many interlocking parts. And this system, which is controlled and driven by, as you called it, you know, the, the, the power elites, the financial elites the ruling class and it is this system that we're really talking about with its various appendages and what Hillary seems to be doing is that she has recognized the quote you know to, to use to lack for lack of a better word the systemic nature of our imperialism and she is looking to become the new face of this system absolutely I would just like to mention one aspect of this uh, global uh, power system. And that's the United States' extraordinary relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now, Hillary certainly didn't invent that. That's been going on for quite a long time. But she's particularly close to it. And if you notice the don donors to her, the Clinton Foundation, Saudi Arabia is right up there on top. Mm -hmm. Huge amounts of money coming from Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, we all know the charitable instincts of <laughs> rulers of Saudi Arabia. So really, <laughs> you don't think that they're pouring that money in for the good of humanity, since meanwhile, they're chopping people's heads off and et cetera, et cetera, and also backing the, the, the rebels who are spreading their Wahhabite um, religion which is Islamic extremism, they're behind all that. They, they may, what their role is, 9-11, is not too clear either. This is probably the most oppressive country on earth. And here we are, it's our friend and ally in this charade that we are making wars on behalf of democracy. I mean, anybody who can believe that can believe anything. I mean, that is the most blatant lie you can come up with. And yet that is our number one ally, along with Israel uh, in the Middle East. And of course, there are contradictions between them too. But the point is that there's no consistent, uh, uh, could you say, ethical uh, viewpoint here. This is just to spread financial capital. And 
And the, the, the alliance with Saudi Arabia, don't forget, is a big part of the military-industrial complex. Yes. Because the point is not that it just has oil. The point is that it spends the money that it gets for that oil to buy weapons from the United States and it's a little bit from its closest allies in Europe. So actually, the Saudi, Saudi Arabia is a pillar of the military industrial complex. And not only that, and not only that, they they plow the money back into the purchase of weapons but also into the financing of terror networks, those same terror networks which are ever so conveniently used by the United States, by the West, by NATO as the in so, at sometimes the proxy army, at sometimes the pretext for our new and renewed and expanded war. Well, absolutely. And in fact, they have been sponsoring Islamic extremism all over, I mean, from Bosnia um, and Kosovo to, uh, I, I mean, their ideology. That hasn't broken out. Well, it has in a sense, but I, I won't go into that. But uh, all, all over, all over uh, the, the Muslim world, they're spreading their extremist uh, ideology. And I, I, I don't like to get into gossip. It's not my, my type. But I do think that there's something significant about Hillary's particularly close relationship with her for 20 years or so with her uh, aide, uh, Huma Abedin, who actually comes from a family that is very much involved in Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, politics. And I, I think that uh, I'm not saying that's a cause of anything, but uh, it's a choice of hers to be so close to Saudi Arabia in every possible way, and uh, as well as being very close to Netanyahu. I mean, it, it's yep. a it's a strange combination, but that is, frankly, uh, if you take uh, Saudi Arabia and Netanyahu, that sums up Hillary's uh, interest in the Middle East. Well, and what's interesting about the way that you're presenting that, and I just would point out that students of the empire, uh, you know, the post-World War II imperial system know that for the United States and for U.S. policy, the two principal anchors in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia and Israel. And for Hillary Clinton to cultivate these long-standing relationships with both of these two regional powers, I think gets back to the point that we were mentioning at the very top of our conversation here, that Hillary is vying to, uh, for lack of a better word, embody the imperial system. And she does that even in her own friendships, even in her own personal networks. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's that's um, what I was suggesting. I mean, there's the there's the uh, uh, close relationship with Saudi Arabia, and then of course there's um, there's the uh, uh, enthusiastic and, and uh, very lucrative backing of Haim Saban, mm -hmm. uh, who um, uh, of course you almost any candidate in the United States is is going to be backed by some pro-Israel billionaire just to uh, um, confirm the ties. But uh, so, so it's very clear that she's looking at the Middle East from the interests of those two powers who have, although they're so different, actually have a de facto alliance that goes, up, goes way, way back because both of them uh, want to 
weaken, and I've always wanted to weaken, Arab nationalism, which was the modernizing force in the Arab world. The Arab world was torn apart, you know, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, and then it was sort of got... Uh, taken over by France and Britain, and but these the 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 so called the the nationalist states are the ones that were modernizing, and that was true of uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, it's true of Syria. In its own way, it was true of Libya. These were the, they were uh, educating their public. Uh, they were providing public services. They were allowing uh, women to take a strong part in society rather than rush around wearing tents and so on. And actually, the whole thrust, Israel has been against Arab nationalism because it, it was more or less supporting the Palestinians. Not that that's done them any good, but nevertheless, there was a there was a political support for for the Palestinians from the Arab national states. So so Israel has tended to prefer having an enemy that everybody will hate. That is to have the Islamists uh, in around because they can urge the West to ally with them. And Saudi Arabia just wants to get rid of them to go back to the Middle Ages. Right. And you know, one other thing that I want to add there just for the, you know, for the listeners also is one of the other reasons Israel always sought to destroy Arab nationalism is not solely, you know, because it's secular and because it, you know, represented, uh, you know, some at least some elements of socialism, though I think that we should be careful about throwing that word around. But um, the other thing is this concept that at the time, you know, decades ago was quite relevant and has since, I think, been totally smashed, and that's the notion of pan-Arabism. The notion that the Arab countries of the region were more united than they were divided and that they had common interests and common enemies and common goals and a common future. And for Israel, uh, in order to ensure its own hegemony, they have always sought to keep the region as divided as possible. And that's one reason why they saw in Nasser and in Gaddafi and in Hafez Assad and in these types of leaders, a real danger. Absolutely, it's the same old thing of divide and, and rule. And if you keep uh, the the your Arab neighbors at each other's throats, one way or another, you continue to be the dominant power in the region. Exactly. And uh, and that's uh, that, that's been. And now, I mean, they have so much succeeded in this. I mean, with a little help from the mistakes of uh, of the Arabs too. I don't deny that, but the fact is that these wars uh, have the recent U.S. wars have been really wars for Israel primarily, because they were wars that eliminated. I mean, the war against um, against Iraq, of course, has been pretty well documented as having been. Uh, sponsored, urged on, uh, et cetera, et cetera, by the neocon faction. And uh, the same thing goes for for Syria. And what is absolutely appalling to me is the extent to which publics, and I'm not just saying the United States, but in Europe, readily believe the propaganda of the media. They come along and, oh, we've just discovered a horrible dictator who must be overthrown. And everybody believes that. 
Uh, it's like, fool, fool me, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 312 times, shame on me. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I, I mean, I find it really, really frightening that um, that the publics of, uh, of, of the West, Western countries, are, are so easily taken in by the same old, roughly the same old story told over and over. Uh, this is a horrible dictator. He's going to kill his own people. So we kill his own people instead. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but that's all right, because we're doing it to bring democracy, right? Um, no, I mean, I mean, this is so absurd. And yet people, uh, I mean, intelligent people be- believe it. I, I can't explain this. <laughs> well, you know, and the thing about that, too, is I think it's also rude. And I want to I, I do want to get back to Hillary Clinton, but I just want to make this point right. that I think part of the, you know, let's call it psychological reasoning behind being able to believe that is unfortunately and embarrassingly rooted in this concept of American exceptionalism. The notion that the United States can, quote unquote, bring democracy, that when we slaughter people, when we steal resources, when we destroy nations, when we fight wars, it's not because we're doing all of those things, but it's because we're good guys. We are inherently the good guys. And that concept is cultivated by all sides of the ruling establishment. And Hillary Clinton is, uh, I think, probably one of the greatest purveyors of that. Yes. And um, I, I think there is a cultural factor here. You know, um, there's something in, uh, in, a lo- in a lot of American popular culture, from comic books to movies to mm-hmm games, video games, a very Manichaean view of the world. You've got the good against the bad, and the role of the good is to destroy the bad. And in fact, this this cultivates a Manichaeism, a, a dualism that uh, promotes hatred of, of others. Uh, the, the amount of hatred that has been turned against Putin is simply astonishing. I mean, nobody really in the United States has any reason to hate Putin, but they've been, but they're so used to the idea that there's a bad guy in every story, and that the only thing to do with the bad guy is to get rid of him. That's sort of the uh, American fictional uh, story uh, that's told over and over again. I mean, from yeah. Superman or, or or Rambo or anything, you 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 always you you don't try to understand people. You don't try to to live in a world with other people. At least you have to do that in your own family, <laughs> or maybe with your neighbors. But you get on the world scale, and it becomes infantile. There's the good and the bad, and the good have to eliminate the bad, and we are the good who do that. And this this fairy tale is accepted by millions of people, and it's horrific. Well, and also, just to finish that point on Putin, I think that in many ways, Putin, more than anybody else in recent memory, uh, sort of embodies that fictionalized archetype of the evil villain. In other words, you know, it's like in James Bond, you know, Blofeld stroking his cat, you know, uh, calculating somewhere, you know, buried in a mountain or something, you know, how to how to rule the world or something like this, rather than, you know, some uh, a leader who we might not agree with on a lot of issues 
issues, but who has, uh, you know, a, a national sort of perspective and is advancing his nation's interests as he sees them and, it's, and as his people see them. And the, getting to what you're saying, trying to understand that, put yourself in that position, understand the mentality, lean on people who are experts in that culture, you know, getting a holistic view of it. All of that is sort of uh, uh, thrown out the window. It's totally eschewed in favor of casting, typecasting somebody like a Putin as the great world villain. Well, yes, and you see, there's, there is no desire on the part of the media to know anything. I mean, right. I take the example, uh, uh, there's one, uh, you know, just who I mean, one honest expert on Russia, Stephen Cohen. And uh, he's been marginalized, and it is uh, by the media. They don't want to hear the voice of somebody who really knows and understands the, the situation. Uh, all they want is people just write fiction. I mean, a lot of the comments are just fictional. About you have the fictional character, and you create with the media a fictional Putin. Mm-hmm. It really has virtually nothing to do with the real leader. Putin, after all, is basically a, a liberal. He's also pro-Western. I mean, he, he, he wanted to, to be partner of the West. The, the hostility has come entirely from the West toward, toward Putin. The only thing he did is he said, look, um, but you have to respect other people. You know, you have to... Re- he, all he's asked for really is respect. He has not got it. Hillary was, you know, hating him from word go. Um, and the whole policy, uh, ever since uh, Russia stopped being communist, has been to weaken it, to tear it apart. And all of this is, is intended, in fact to uh, the, the whole Western thrust, the, the surrounding of, of, uh, of, of Russia by weapons, all of this, all of this policy is meant to break the country up using uh, ethnic differences, whatever you want. Yeah. Um... In order to get off, to, if you break something up, it's like Yugoslavia was the little was the little test case that was, it, it was like a little Soviet Union. And so what happened? We, we break this up and it's, it's just a little bunch of, of, of dependent statelets. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, a, it's a total dependency. And you break up a big country and then it's just little pieces who don't get along with each other and you go in and anything you want there, like the resources you just take. And, I mean, I don't think this is going to succeed. I think it's going to succeed in getting us into... Uh, Doomsday. Yeah, that let's 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 leave that aside for just a second. I do want to return to Russia, but I want to I want to bring us back to this question of Hillary Clinton. One of the things that strikes me, especially, you know, in reading this this book and the way that it's laid out again, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton, available in the digital edition on Counterpunch, available online. Uh, Definitely get a copy of it. But this question of, you know, quote unquote, the Clinton Wars, right? That Clinton's Wars, I think that there are certain commonalities that we can really pull out and distill if we take the long view. So, you know, we talk about Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Libya, even Clinton's very nefarious role in the uh, 2009 coup in Honduras. Uh, all of these uh, examples, I think, have some very clear commonalities. Um, could you talk a little bit about what we can see 
see where the overlaps are and how Hillary Clinton fits into that. Well, uh, for one thing, how she fits in, it's well documented and she's boasted about it, that she was uh, urging uh, Bill to, to, to bomb Serbia, Yugoslavia. Um, she, she's been right at the front forefront of considering that the way to deal with problems is military force. That's, that's, uh, uh, but of course, this is part of the whole project to uh, turn the world over to financial capital as centered in the United States. Uh, I mean, that's why she gets all these huge donations from billionaires and so on, is, is because the, the whole, the whole policy is, is, is one big uh, thrust to use U- U.S. military power on behalf of uh, certain interests, which happen to be very widespread. I mean, it's it's the when you say financial capital, you you can't point to a person, and it's not a plot either. It's a it's a function that has been allowed to take over, and it and it 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 it's in our domestic policy too. I mean, the the Clintons ended the. Glass-Steagall uh, regulations on financial capital, which led to the uh, financial crisis, which Europe is still f- f- suffering from. Um, the uh, NAFTA, all of these things have that same goal, and 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 Hillary is totally devoted to 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 that, and also to the use of force to to. Um, to to advance the, these these aims, but the the Yugoslav war was really the war to start all wars, and it it um, it had all the characteristics of the war. The, the media hype you start out be, building up a media uh, hype about dictators and Hitler and. And so on, and so that there becomes to be a, a popular cry: "Oh, we must intervene!" And and then uh, you use bombing, which, in fact, uh, you have on our side no virtually no losses, but they devastates the other side. We don't care much about that. Um, these 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 are wars that are uh, I think Putin put it very well once he said that the United States acts sometimes as if they were treating the rest of the world like laboratory rats because we keep experimenting with how to break up a country how how to uh, how how to demoralize the population and and uh, just leave it completely helpless for us to take over. But you see, we're going to run up in, against countries that, that won't be that easy. There's no doubt. And one of the other things that I would point out about Hillary that I, you know, it well, it's interesting because in many ways Hillary is a neocon, despite the fact that her, you know, party that she's affiliated with the Democratic Party, and typically we think of neocons as Republicans. But in many ways, she is a neocon. However, I, I don't agree with that at all because no? okay, neocons, go ahead. The neocons came; they started out with the Democrats, with with Senator Jackson, the the senator from Boeing. You know. Um, the the neocons first got started in the office of uh, uh, of uh, 
Senator Skip Jackson way back. They, the neocons will go wherever the power is, and they have already infiltrated the, the State Department to such extent. Victoria Newland, who engineered the coup in, in Ukraine, is, of course, a total neocon, and her husband is even the chief, practically the chief current. Yeah, neocon. Robert Kagan. Uh, yep. And... and so the neocons are there no matter which. They're not identified with um, any party. They are identified with their own party, and their own party has is directing uh, – I, I go into this in the book. How did the neocons get in control? Um, I think this has to do with the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's this huge power that – has been building up this insane overarming, of, which is very, very profitable, exactly to investment capital. Because you invest in arms and you're bound to make a profit because the government has promised to pay you. You see, it, it's it's ideal business for, uh, for for investments. And so there's so many interests in Congress and so on for the military industrial complex. But when there's no real threat, uh, what is it there for? So the, the neocons have basically taken over the think tanks, which find reasons for this, for using this power. You see, yes. You, yes. you can't keep having this power all the time and not say, well, oh, we need it for something. So the, the neocons in the think tanks sit there and they find threats. And the threats that they find, since a lot of them are closely attached to Israel, are the threats to Israel. <laughs> um, and so we make wars for Israel because because it keeps the military industrial complex going. Yes, um, I, I agree with all of that. Uh, let me rephrase the point I was going to make because what okay. I what I wanted to say was the if we if we look for instance at the kind of um, rhetoric and pretext that was used to sell, you know, that the neocons uh, in the Bush administration, for instance, used to sell the second war in Iraq, right? It was weapons of mass destruction, imminent danger, imminent threat, all of these type of things. But in many ways, and we've seen this in the Obama administration, in many ways, uh, uh, an even more effective way of selling war is the pretext of humanitarianism, responsibility to protect humanitarian intervention. These type of things play into the mass psychology of the United States, of U.S. exceptionalism and so forth. And so when we think about things that Hillary Clinton is directly involved in, whether it was Rwanda, Yugoslavia, uh, Libya, even Honduras in some ways, um, all of these things fall under this rubric of uh, humanitarian intervention. We're the good guys trying to stop something bad from happening. That is a justification for war. Hillary is very, very good at playing on that. Yes, well, that's the main distinction that I have uh, suggested between the Republicans and the Democrats. Right, exactly. The Republicans prefer the pretext of a threat, and the Democrats prefer the pretext of humanitarianism. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's, but in fact, it's exactly the same. <laughs> Whichever pretext, you're in fact going in there to destroy a country and take it over. And but it's just there's a there's a preference, uh, an ideological preference for stopping threats and blah, 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 on top of the Republicans, and then the Democrats like to be nice and go and save people. But it's exactly the same result. 
No doubt about it. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to continue so much more to discuss. Again, the book, Absolute Must Read, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton uh, by Diana Johnstone. Um, We're going to be right back on the other side of the break. Thanks for listening. Stick with us. Life is a debt that must someday be Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Diana Johnstone again. The book we've been—I've been plugging it. It's—I mean, it's a must-read, and you know, it's—it's it's one thing to say that; it's another thing to really mean that. I, forget the Republican debates, forget the Democratic debates, forget you know the primaries and all of that. Read this book to understand the system and and what we're really facing. Um, so. Interestingly enough, one point I want to make about about Hillary and about how she operates, and it's it's so deeply cynical and so deeply hypocritical the way that she does this. Um, in Honduras, for example, in two thousand nine, her her I guess probably her first big moment as Secretary of State, and you write about this in the book that she essentially is able to put on two 
completely diametrically opposed faces and to do them simultaneously. On the one hand, she'll condemn a right-wing coup backed by the United States that overthrows the democratically elected government. She says it in her own autobiography that I had to condemn it because Zelaya, the former president, was democratically elected. But she knows perfectly well that at the very moment that she's condemning it, she's speaking to her Washington insiders like Lonnie Davis and the other lobbyists to deliberately not only undermine uh, Honduras and to destabilize it, but to create a situation in which they lobby on behalf of the coup makers. This kind of cynicism from Hillary is, I think, in many ways what makes her so dangerous and why she, perhaps more than any other candidate, is really, I think, a danger to the entire world. Well, that's a good point. Um, of course, I tend to think that there's an awful lot of cynicism floating around in the, within the Beltway. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, she she uh, she's she's a proven liar. You know, I mean, um, it doesn't even seem to bother her like that like that that business about pretending to be under fire in Bosnia. Uh, um, but no, her she's not bothered at all by this. That's true, and it it isn't just that she's cynical and dishonest, but how she uses that cynicism and dishonesty yes. uh, with uh, because I think cynicism and dishonesty are pretty much endemic among politicians. But but her uses of it are really terrible, and she's 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 fostering. Uh, the American uh, uh, exceptionalism to 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 foster hatred of of the others of other war, of the uh, rest of the world. There, there's an awful lot of just hostility to the rest of the world. I mean, how do they dare not be American? I mean, there's really the United States is very provincial in a lot of ways, and she is directing that provincial uh, arrogance toward hatred of chosen enemies that she wants to get rid of. And this is extraordinarily dangerous. I don't know what other candidate would be so dangerous in that respect. But, of course, I don't think that the election can solve the problem, uh, as you may notice. Nor is – nor right, exactly. And I would – I – I go even further than that and say that the elections are essentially meaningless because no matter who ultimately ends up at the end of the day going head to head, they're both working for the same interests. Um, now, I want to I wanna bring up Libya because Libya was, I think, in many ways a seminal moment in recent history, um, uh, particularly for a lot of people who are active in anti-war work as, as I am and have been for a while. Um, you know, nobody nobody could forget Hillary saying, you know, we came, we saw he died in her in her really sick, <laughs> in her real sick way. Um, but what I want to bring up is this. Over the course of the last couple of years, we have seen Hillary Clinton being smeared endlessly by Republicans over this Benghazi issue, this total debacle in Washington that they've been playing out uh, for the last couple of years. But. What I find interesting about it is that in many ways, these Republicans who are acting 
posturing as if they're really trying to destroy Hillary over this issue in many ways have totally whitewashed what really happened in Benghazi and have whitewashed the entire war in 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 Libya in many ways in the interests of Hillary Clinton not talking about how Benghazi was being used to funnel weapons into Syria and to shuttle fighters into Syria how how Benghazi was a you know the the so-called consulate was really a CIA uh, annex there and all of these other components to this story that have been totally removed from the narrative. So um, do you agree that in some ways those who seem to be attacking Hillary are in many ways upholding her flanks? I entirely agree with you. Uh, I, I think it's I think that's a flagrant uh, demonstration of, of the fact that elections aren't likely to change anything because there's no real opposition to that policy. Right. Uh, the Republicans had a huge chance. I mean, this was a horrible war in every possible respect. And they, they instead, they, they concentrate on something they're not even honest about, which is what happened in Benghazi, uh, about, about just detail, just trivia, trivia. And, uh, and that really shows that, that, um, that even when they have a chance to score points politically, they will prefer to go along with the lies uh, th- than to use these points. They would rather lose then they would rather lose elections than question uh, a, a, an atrocious uh, policy. I, I think that's a, it's, it's a big illustration because they have just avoided the issues entirely, the real issues, which, of course, are that, that you know we 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 went in there and and just totally destroyed it on behalf of. Islamic extremists again. There we go. There we go. This is another case where the United States is allied with the people we're supposed to be our official enemies. That is to be uh, what we call the terrorists, the Islamic fanatics. We lie with them over and over again, de facto, on some pretext or other. Ever since Afghanistan, we we were doing that. We start that started with Afghanistan when. Uh, when we started allying with uh, with the mujahideen, you know, to, in in order to uh, cause trouble to the Russians, and then of course we we allied even in Bosnia. It wasn't anyway. I, I'm not going to go into that here, but over and over, and most flagrantly in Libya, the fact is that he said that Gaddafi was a dictator, an oppressive dictator. Well, if you look at it, who was he oppressing when he was oppressing? He was oppressing Islamic extremists. Yes, he was, exactly. The whole point of Gaddafi is he was trying to modernize in his own way a country that hardly existed as a country when he took it over. He was, he was, his enemy was always Islamic extremists. He was the first to denounce bin Laden. Um, And and you know, of course, the U.S. experts know that they pretend they didn't know that, but they had to know that. They have to know something, and that was absolutely blatant. Well, and one of the other things about about Gaddafi, um, you know, and I've been smeared repeatedly for defending Gaddafi, and I'll still defend Gaddafi, and I'll debate anybody on those points. But one of the things that um, I think is really interesting about it is that they played on, you know, in order to sell the war, uh, particularly to the left, to the left progressives, liberals, and so forth. 
about, you know, the 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 um, foundation funded left, alternative left and all the rest of that. Um, they played on a lot of the uh, of these really superficial elements, you know, Gaddafi's eccentricity, you know, Gaddafi's, you know, weird relationships, his personality flaws, things like that, because they understood that if they actually laid out on the policy level and if they laid out what Gaddafi's political orientation is, people would be like, oh, my God, why do we have to get rid of Gaddafi? Things are going to be way worse without him. People would have understood that. And so that's another example of how Hillary is very good at selling these wars. And of course, not Hillary, but rather the class that she represents um, in selling these wars in such a way. Yes, yes. I, I, all she has to say about him is that, uh, you know, he, he wears, uh, he makes terrible speeches, which she has no, never quotes, and, um, and wears funny clothes. You know, you, you, you know, it, it, Gaddafi was uh, an African as well as an Arab. I mean, he was a Bedouin. And the way he dressed may have had some political value in the, was in the world he was in, just as the way she dressed <laughs> has a value. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you, I, this annoys me because we're talking all the time about multiculturalism and, and putting up with different customs and peoples and so on. And, and here you have a leader who has a different custom, and, and we just ridicule it you know, and make it a reason to throw, overthrow him. Because- well, and, and and more to the point, get what you're getting at, Diana, and you're totally right. You know, some of the ways that he dressed, some of the things that he said, all of these things, it wasn't just because he was some kind of a weirdo, you know, it was because Gaddafi had made the conscious choice to turn away from the Gulf states, to turn away from the oil monarchs and all of the rest of them, and to focus on Africa and to see himself as a uniter of Africa in the, you know, in the grand tradition of those who had come before him uh, trying to unite you know, the Arab world, he saw Africa in that way. And so, you know, this appellation of the King of Kings of Africa that people like to throw around as if it's like some humiliation, it w- it served a political purpose for what his project was. Absolutely. And and you see, he was very popular in, in with the people of Africa. He was beloved. <laughs> he was beloved in Africa. And I mean, Africans in Chad or someplace, they're miserable. They can they could go to Libya and get a decent job and be paid for it, not go into slavery as in Qatar or someplace. Uh, they, 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 uh, and he was pouring money into Africa, his whole ambition. And of course, that is one of the reasons that he was overthrown, by the yes. way. Yes. And it's come out r- rather recently from all this that the uh these emails that the French say it uh that one of the reasons is that he was trying to support with Libyan money uh a, a, a separate African currency that would free Africa from dependence, particularly in West Africa, from the French franc. Yes. It's a CFA franc. It's not the real franc, but it's it's backed by France. And the French didn't want that loss of influence. And that was one reason, a secret reason, because it's only come out in secret messages. And certainly, on the contrary, in the public, it was presented in very different ways. Uh, but that was that was a reason of a fear of losing uh, French financial uh, Interest and of course the United States and France are absolutely together now on that. 
Um, you could see an Ivory Coast, but that's another subject. Uh, uh, they they are working. Uh, they don't want to do anything for Africa, but they don't want anybody else to have it. One other. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean that's that's the thing about the Western uh, 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 policy in Africa is is it's dog in the manger. They aren't really w- willing to investigate, invest really to help Africa as as they might once have done, but they don't want the Chinese to have it, and they don't want Gaddafi to help it be independent. And that was a major, and it's just outrageous, if I may say so, that this hasn't been brought to the attention of uh, Afro Americans. You know, this, that war was a war against Africa. Yeah, that that's that's totally right. I've I've done a lot of um, work on that issue, especially with some of my um, you know com- comrades on the black radical left. And unfortunately, we were not only marginalized but endlessly demonized and attacked for daring to make exactly those points that that you're mentioning. And one last thing I want to say about Libya before we before we move on, and this is I think germane to this question of Hillary Clinton. Look at what the so-called, you know, this, this, this humanitarian operation, the war that destroyed Libya, look at what this has, what this has wrought for Africa. Um, we can point directly to the destruction of Libya as the immediate uh, uh, and direct cause of the rise of Boko Haram in Nigeria, the direct cause of the spread of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the flow of Libyan weapons into West Africa. Africa, the flow of fighters, all of these things that have directly come out of the war in Libya. In many ways, uh, the war on Libya, which Clinton was a major cheerleader for, is the uh, it, it is the base of a destabilization of the entire North and West Africa uh, region. And that, I think, is a good illustration of the kind of chaos, you know, to use your term, that Hillary Clinton is able to bring uh, probably more effectively than almost anybody else. Well, yes, and I I should really conclude with this. Since since I live in France, in Europe, I would say that that chaos that has been initiated by the United States in its wars in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, and in Libya is now bringing chaos into Europe. And and in fact, Europe is 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 in a very very dangerous situation now because of course um, the the from Libya of course this is the the, the flow of, of of desperate refugees from Africa uh, into into southern Europe which didn't exist before plus the other refugees which are being sort of filtered by Turkey with. And you don't exactly know who they are. And this is going to cause huge disruptions in Europe, which is, is not financially at the present, since Europe is being um, uh, obliged to follow these austerity policies. There's not the room for immigration. There's, uh, there's no jobs. 
there's um, it, it, it's not a time for immigration, if you see what I mean. There are periods when you can take in a lot of people and it's even helpful to the economy. That's not the case of Europe right now. And you don't know who these are. And um, there are these terrorist attacks, et cetera, et cetera. The, the chaos is the chaos that, that the United States and that Hillary in particular adores causing is can be a worldwide chaos yes though i think it should be said that the other side of that is the fact that when a country or an empire goes and destroys an entire region it then i think not only morally but politically has an obligation to the victims of all of those wars and that is i think one of the fundamental questions here while on the one hand europe wants to say we're in a situation where we can't take refugees we don't have jobs we don't have this we don't have that at the same time take a look at the drone footage in syria take a look at what's happened in libya Look at Afghanistan, and where do you expect those people to go if not back into the seat of the empire to try to find, you know, a, a corner of the world where they can raise their families? So, you know, it's interesting the way that this whole this whole narrative, I think, is being twisted. And in Europe, since you brought it up, I think we also need to point out the rise of a, a virulent form of fascism that is now rearing its head all over the continent, whether you look at Nazis in Ukraine, whether you look Look at far-right extremists, who I would also call Nazis, in places like Hungary and in Poland and in and the Islamophobia and extreme right-wing rhetoric, even in Germany. This is also a very dangerous phenomenon, and we also see a clear and unmistakable scapegoating of the refugees who, by and large, with the exception of obviously some of the fleeing fighters, but by and large are people who have been caught as victims of these wars. Well, uh, uh, yes, um, um, but uh, of course, the, one of the difficulties is that Europeans, especially the British who are on their island and can ignore all this, and the French have participated in a small way uh, in, in some of these wars, not all of them, uh, but certainly in Libya, France was taking a leading role symbolically because the, the hardware comes from the United States, but and and Britain were were also responsible for this. So this is a backlash that they're they're getting from their own uh, uh, crimes. But um, the still the, the these these horrible uh, results that you're mentioning are inevitable from the type of policy that the United States has been following. You know, you're breaking up, you're destroying countries, and then they go into other, I mean, all of these things are inevitable results of U.S. policy. And, uh, of course, the Americans can sit by and say, fine, because there's no no draft, and we just go and bomb and destroy other countries from the air, we don't even see it, we don't know about it, we just know they're getting rid of the bad guys. And so how long can Americans go on being responsible for all this evil in the world and not even knowing it? 
Well, and also, um, I think that the question of responsibility is an important one because even in a situation where, you know, European countries are not directly, you know, quote unquote, directly involved, they still are. Because as we mentioned at our at yeah. the open of our conversation here, um, the way that I described it, at least, we have not an American empire, but an imperial system, one in which the United States fronts and, and, and sort of represents the face of it. But NATO is the military arm of the United States in Europe. And if you are a part of NATO, and if you go along with all of these policies, and you reap the benefits financially and otherwise getting a slice of that neo-colonial pie, well, then you are directly responsible for all of these things. As we know, French intelligence, DGSE, um, involved directly in what's happened in Syria these last few years, as has MI6, as has the CIA, all of this openly documented. So when I hear some people in Europe trying to uh, wash their hands of this and absolve themselves of responsibility for the creation of the refugee crisis, I have to point out the very nature of the imperial system. Well, I don't quite agree with you, because I don't think they're reaping the benefits. They, they, the leaders think they will. They obviously are sold out entirely to U.S. leadership, thinking, uh, well, remember that Europe is still occupied militarily, you know. It's, it's been occupied ever since the end of World War II. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's not an independent. Uh, the, the countries here are not independent. The European Union is a way of keeping them from being independent because it makes the economic rules. Uh, all of this, they, the leaders here who are increasingly uh, unpopular – uh, think that by tying themselves to the U.S. empire, they're part of the empire, and et cetera, et cetera. But in a matter of fact, they're not doing that well, and they're not really get, reaping the benefits. In fact, France thought they'd go into Libya and would get special oil contracts. They didn't get them, by the way. You see, a lot of this is an illusion that you're going to get these benefits, but they, somebody else gets them. Uh, and And so... I think that the European leaders are simply uh, cowardly and stupid uh, in going along with it, especially the, president, the, the French government that, uh, right now. Um, they, they, are, they are willing vassals of Washington, and they've, they've thought that they were on the winning side, but I, I think they are not. They're suffering from the policies uh, of sanctions against Russia. They're not benefiting from this. They're losing from it, but they still follow the United States. Well, okay. Now, I, I just want to clarify something, though, and where I guess I'm going to take a have a slight disagreement with you. The quote-unquote leaders in Europe, somebody like a Hollande or whomever, this is not who really leads Europe. This is not who controls uh, the, the the future of Europe. What we, I, in my view, it is a financial establishment rooted in Brussels and in Frankfurt and particularly in the city of London and in Paris. These financial elites who in many ways are the adjunct of Wall Street and they work hand-in-hand -hand with Wall Street, as we mentioned, finance capital. These are the ones who, to a large extent, do benefit from this. German industrialists suffer. French industrialists suffer from sanctions against Russia. But the financial elites, those who see their future directly married to the growth of finance capital and neoliberal capitalism, they're certainly reaping the benefits of this. 
I, I certainly agree, but you made the distinction, which I would go along with, between financial capital, which is very, very few people, and in France it, it amounts to less and less. It's not the city of London. Uh, and there's great uh, discontent among German industrialists and business. Of course. Well, that's natural. <laughs> yeah. Because they want to do business with Russia, and the, and, and the farmers also, because Russia countersanctioned against the the, uh, the farm products. They, they're all suffering from these policies. I mean, I don't think – I mean – I don't think anybody, including, by the way, the American people, are really benefiting from these policies. They're paying huge amounts of money for more and more weapons, uh, along with Saudi Arabia, uh, also paying. Um, and I really don't think, even though this is, well, financial capital isn't people anyway. It's, it's, it's a system, and it, it it's going. It's getting too top heavy because there's all this capital and and, and nothing to invest in. And you have to keep aggressing to find some something to invest in. Uh, I this to me this is a totally pernicious system from all, all the way around. Of course, there are a few billionaires. A few. Well, there are quite a few billionaires. They are benefiting, uh, but I don't think the people of any country are benefiting from this. Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. I, I guess just the final point I want to make on that is that the illusion is that uh, these the, that this system is supposed to serve the people, which it does not. The people are in many ways simply irrelevant. They are just they are just peasants to the ruling elites. They don't see them as less even human beings, let alone someone who's supposed to have a say in the future of all of this. So when I say that quote unquote Europe is benefiting or the United States is benefiting, I don't mean the European people or the American people. I mean those who own and run Europe and own and run the United States. That's who's benefiting from this, which is why we have to sort of, I guess, maybe clarify our terminology. Well, yes. And you, you see, my my own only hope is that people um, in the United States, but also in the European countries, uh, wake up to this. And I, and I think, I mean, I, I, I think it is uh, there's more and more discontent and criticism, but the fact is that there's great censorship and the role of the media, you can't imagine. You see, that's one of the things is the media is really there to keep people misinformed. Yes. And well, that's true all over. Well, and, and right there is one of the, uh, I, in my view, one of the most important roles of, of something like Counterpunch. Counterpunch, I mean, just the very name alone is intended to act as a counter against the disinformation and misinformation of the corporate media and, I would add, the pseudo-alternative media, which is also owned and operated by finance capital. If your so-called alternative media outlet is dependent financially financially on George Soros and the and the you know the Open Society Foundation the Ford Foundation and all of this all of these other appendages of finance capital and you want to call yourself alternative media I will say that's a lie yes well I I, I of course and uh, it, it's the 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 hope here is the internet is informing some people um, and and that's that's all to the good. I, and that I would say the United States is with counterpunch and some others is is ahead. It's ahead in in doing the bad things, and it's <laughs> ahead in in exposing them. But uh, 
but the, we've it's still a, a long way to go. You know, there's no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Um, okay, I, I know we're a little bit over time already, but I just want to close with one final uh, question. Again, guys, the book Queen of Chaos, gotta get it. Um, the reason I the reason I threw in that final plug there is because that really I think uh, sort of leads me to this question. I think that underlying the whole book, and when you read it, I think you'll agree with me, listeners, that underlying this book there is in some sense a a almost a fear of or, or a vision of a potential global catastrophe, an apocalyptic vision almost that's not fictional, but that is in fact, sadly, quite realistic. Um, Hillary, as in some senses, the ideal person to lead the United States into a global war scenario. This is, I think, the great danger that we're facing, this sort of World War Three, quote unquote, outlook. And I don't think that it's just typical doomsday prognostication. I think that rather it is some kind of it is the logical conclusion based on what we're seeing in the world today. So could we end there? How? How Hillary is the ideal candidate, the best positioned person to lead the imperial system into that very, very frightening future? Well, that's really why I wrote the book. I mean, I wrote the book. Uh, two, two things inspired me to write the book. One was the Libya disaster for which she glo- over which she gloated uh, over a horrible murder of a leader. And then the the conflict with 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 Russia. Yes. And uh, those two events are really what inspired me to write the book, because I see a continuity here. And Hillary absolutely embodies that continuity. Uh, the, the picking of the bad guys, the, the, the demonization of the enemy, the, uh, the rather subtle arousal of hatred for the others, and um, the use of military force to solve every problem. And she is, to me, absolutely representative of, of, this, of this horrible trend toward the sort of disaster that was in World War I, where, where in fact, uh, certain circumstances, you have everybody armed, you have everybody armed, and then some little accident can happen, and, and off we go. And uh, I don't. I don't think that that's a, a plot for world war. I think it's a plot to intimidate and and so on. But it's a sort of of mechanism which leads to disaster because there there the 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 breaks are off, and and uh, so no. Of course, I don't. I'm certainly not having any apocalyptic visions. I'm just looking at the structure of power now. Right. And and with Hillary um, more or less in command, I I just feel it's terribly disastrous. And then the only thing I wanted the book is to have a movement that would restrain her. Because it looks like, despite everything, that she's likely to be elected. So if she's president, there has to be a strong, strong movement to put a, put the brakes on that she hasn't got. But since she's so opportunistic... Perhaps if there's a real popular uh, uprising against the war, she might go along with it simply because out of sheer opportunism. But uh, that—that that, I don't know. But there has to be a popular movement to stop this. 
because I don't think the electoral system is going to do it. No doubt. Uh, you know, I just want to I just want to make the point as well. When when I say apocalyptic vision, I, I don't mean that in the sort of global conspiratorial sense of the That's word, a- but rather trying to discern where the world is headed based on the kinds of leaders and the kinds of policies that we have. And I think that uh, what you're getting at is 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 absolutely correct, namely that the danger here is just like, you know, if you look at the literature, I've, I've done this before for, for other research purposes. If you look at some of the literature of, uh, you know, the spring and the early summer of 1914, there is a, a, an obliviousness to where the world is headed in just a few months' time. Uh, there is almost this complete and utter uh, ignorance of just how dangerous the situation has become with this sort of diplomatic and political brinksmanship and and that ultimately led to a a global catastrophe the likes of which people had never uh, believed could possibly happen just a few months later and unfortunately I think that in and World War II is of course an extension of the same contradictions that led to World War One in many ways and some of the unresolved conflicts and I fear that when we look at a Hillary Clinton presidency and we look at what's uh, you know going on in Ukraine and in Syria with the conflict with Russia and China and all of these things, it has a distinct ring of 1914 to me. Well, exactly. And in fact, when when the new year came and we, we went into 19, to 2014, my expectation was that this anniversary would lead to your sort of re- reflection, to looking back on how we got into this disaster and, and, and finding ways to prevent it again. And my God, instead of using this anniversary to recall the disaster and work to avoid it, we're doing the same thing all over again. And it's I, I, because I started this in, 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 19, um, in 2014 because, in fact, instead of learning from the past catastrophe to avoid catastrophe, we seem to be starting right out to have a catastrophe of the same type all over again, except with much more deadly weapons, including all kinds of nuclear weapons. That's absolutely right. Um, we'll have to leave it there for now. I would love to have you back and, uh, you know, at some point in the not too distant future to talk through some of these other issues, because I don't I, I just want to note. There are so many other things to say about Hillary Clinton, including and, and the Clintons in general, including Haiti, including Africa, including all of these other places that they're also involved in wrecking. But we're going to have to leave that for another time. Diana Johnstone, journalist, author, the book, Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. Get it immediately. Run, don't walk to Counterpunch. Get yourself a digital copy. Read the book. It's excellent. Diana, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you. I just hope people will get the paper. I'm old-fashioned. Old I hope some people will get the paper book. <laughs> you know, I, although I'm significantly younger, I'm also old-fashioned in that sense, and I like the paper copies as well. <laughs> but, uh, Diana, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank Listeners, you. thank you as always for listening, and we'll speak to you again real soon. 